Welcome to the Law in Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the CEO of Law in Sport. Thank you so much for tuning in. We have a fantastic episode for you today with our very special guest, Brendan Schwab, who is an Australian Chief Executive Officer, lawyer and non-executive director working across the labour movement, human rights, sports and business, both internationally and domestically. He has been instrumental in his work um, as the co-founder of the World Players Association, FIFPRO Asia and Oceania, the Australian Athletes Alliance and the Professional Footballers Australia which is the PFA over there. He has represented and worked across a whole host of sports, including rugby, rugby, that is rugby union, rugby league, cricket, Australian rules football, um, American football, hockey, basketball, baseball, and multiple other team sports. It is an honour and privilege to have him on the podcast. He's had a fascinating career. I hope you enjoy the interview as much as I did. And if you did, please do tell people about it. Other than that, I hope you enjoy the show. Brendan, it's always a pleasure to um, speak with you. And every time we speak, I feel like I've essentially got a, a master's level education in a particular area that I was, let's say, um, less educated on than I would have liked. Um, you've had an amazing career today. Um, and I was saying to you another point that, that I didn't quite realise that the extent of, of, of some of the things you've done. Obviously, I know you from... Um, the work you do at World Players Association in particular and FIFPRO. Um, can you tell me how you started to get involved in sport in the first place and why? Well, I think there's a, a, an indirect and a direct answer to that. You know, I, I, I've really been in many ways in the business of sport since, you know, kindergarten. My father was the secretary of the Richmond Football Club in what was then the Victorian Football League, now the Australian Football League. And so, you know, we grew up um, in an environment where, you know, sport meant bread on the table, quite literally. And uh, the Victorian Football League, while not a big business back then, was certainly, you know, a very significant um, cultural institution. You know, my father was, the, Alan was the, the, the secretary of the club. There was probably only half a dozen full-time employees. Even the coach back then was um, part-time. Uh, but his job as the secretary really was to go around the country and recruit the players that would play for the Mighty Tigers, um, as we know it. And, and Richmond was a huge club. Uh, and in that period was a golden era uh, playing in front of massive crowds, 80, 90, 100,000 people. And uh, the players were, uh, you know, part and parcel of our lives. You know, before internet, before Zoom calls, uh, most of the business was done um, at home. It was really, we understood from that stage that it was a 24-hour a day, um, seven-day-a-week uh, uh, type of commitment. And uh, my older brother Cameron and I um, particularly um, grew to love sport from a, a very young age. And I, v in particular, had enormous respect for the players that uh, were part and, and parcel of, of our childhoods. Uh, Dad then went on to um, work at the league level at the Victorian Football League, then which became the Australian Football League, and was one of the architects in many ways of the AFL becoming a national competition. Um, but he he didn't have a formal education. He um, he went straight into sports administration, literally as the office boy, and uh, made his way up through. So he was very determined, as was my mother Annette, that that we had very very strong educations. And so I was really the first one to have the opportunity to go to university. Um, it was at a time when law and the sport were really starting to clash in many ways. Old fashioned sporting norms were coming into contact with um, the legal reality and, and dad uh, in, it made it clear to me that we had to really understand what was occurring outside of sport. Um, so I uh, went to University of Melbourne and got a law degree and later on I got uh, a master uh, in, in business administration. Um, and so really it was a, a cultural experience um, directly, I can tell you that, uh, but I might just pause there and and see what uh, how my opportunity came, because uh, it was really quite lucky as well in many ways how I actually had the opportunity to start working professionally uh, in the play union movement. 
Well, I'll just carry on. To be honest with you, Brendan, I'm really interested to hear this. So um, I'm fascinated because all the time I've known you, I didn't quite, and I think you'd mentioned it in, in passing, I didn't quite know sort of how long you've been exposed to, um, you know, sport generally. Obviously, I know you as a sports fan. I remember once you came to our new conference and you wanted to watch the, yeah, the AFL, uh, I think it was... Um, Come, it was a big game. I remember you was you were very excited, and you were like, "Right, I'm just sorry, guys, I've got to shoot off. I've got got to see this game." It was, I should say, it was it was on the second day, and it was coming to the conference was coming to an end. But um, I knew you had, you know, obviously you're passionate about sport and you're passionate about players, and I knew that you had this um, impressive res, uh, resume in the sort of labour union movement more broadly. Um, I didn't quite know that you'd been exposed to the administration of sport at such a young age. And, I, I, and it made me think as I was preparing for the interview, how much that shaped your um, approach to, to your engagements within the profession. Yeah, look, I, I think it's huge. And, you know, the other thing I should say is my mother, Annette, you know, her, her, her father, Edgar, we called him puppy, was, was, was a committed socialist. And my mother was very, very strong in, in, in driving labor values into me, you know, the fortune of the labor party and the fortune of the Richmond football club were really the two, you know, guiding fortunes of our, our childhood. And, you know, winning was very serious business back in the seventies. Uh, we've learned a lot since then, but if we think of figures like Lombardi and, and Brian Clough and, you know, that very aggressive, um, you know, tennis figures like Illy Nastasi, these types of figures were very much, um, shaping the culture around sport. And, and it wasn't nice. Um, it was very much in your face. And if we look back at some of the old films of those coaches in action, Australian rules football certainly had their figures as well. And so it was a very um, combative uh, type of environment. And we, we felt that um, as kids uh, growing up. You know, when, when, when Richmond didn't win, it, it was a problem. Um, and we felt the tension, uh, for better or for worse, um, in 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 our you know at the kitchen table um and so it, it it's easy to sort of look back um with rose-colored glasses a, a, about it um but it was a very sort of it was serious business um and i'm not saying that's right uh that's just the sort of reality and me being the youngest um out of three i probably felt that the most um being probably the less mature um in 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 the family um, and so, yeah, there's certainly some lifelong um, lessons I think we get from that. Um, one of the important things about uh, dad, and uh, unfortunately he passed away many years ago when he was still relatively young in, in 1993, but one of the um, things about him was that he was interested in all the sports. And in 1972, he did a major tour of European um, soccer and, and really started to study uh, a lot of the big clubs um, in, in England. He went to the United States. And so he very much was a globalist, which back then was some achievement. It was way before you know, we had the internet, a lot of letter writing, a lot of networking involved. And so he really started to model um, the development of Richmond on what Matt Busby had done at Manchester United in that what we try and do is develop our own players. We recruit them uh, when they're kids. We bring them into a good supportive system. Uh, we try and identify the most talented kids in the country and we create the most attractive environment for them. Now, if we don't have a good, a good a, a, enough range of players that we develop ourselves, then certainly we will go into the transfer market and try and get the best players from the other clubs. And, and that model worked very well for Richmond. They won... Uh, five premierships in a little over a decade. And so we very much uh, were accustomed um, to, to um, success. We also learned some bitter lessons in that the club nearly went broke in that process. And so we also learned that if you don't actually understand the business side of it, um, then there are um, a lot of problems. So there was very much this holistic um, uh, upbringing. And we also had the benefit of being able to access, you know, great people, great thinkers, great leaders um, who were thinking about sport. Uh, but when I was young, I thought, wow, you know, Australia is a great sporting nation. Another figure was a guy, Peter Moore from Rugby League in New South Wales, who was the architect of the Canterbury Bulldogs becoming successful, very similar uh, operator to my father. 
And um, but what really struck me was we were undeveloped as a football nation. And we had this great sporting nation that was very successful in sports like rugby union and cricket and others. But when it came to football, we'd only ever qualified for the World Cup once. And um, that was in 1974. And a lot of mainstream Australia did not take Australian soccer seriously. And uh, because Dad had studied soccer so closely, I really, at a young age, started to think, wow, what could we do if we could turn a great sporting nation into a great um, football nation? And it it was sort of uncharted territory. Um, so, and I actually loved the game. I started playing the game as a kid, even though my father worked in Australian rules football, he fully supported uh, all of that, uh, which wasn't always the case, you know. Um, there, there was, you know, you, you could be accused of being a traitor to leave Australian rules football and start playing soccer, as we called it back then. And, and some countries like the US obviously still do. Um, and so I was really excited about, well, maybe I can do something original, something new and help transform Australia into being uh, a successful football nation. And so once I started to work through school and study law and, and whatever, it was always at the back of my mind that um, if I ever got the opportunity to do that, then I would, I would embrace it with open arms. You mentioned obviously your, 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 your father didn't... Uh didn't didn't go to university um but obviously seemed like a man of action by the sound of things you're yeah, actually going to, to you know and, and going to find out information um and to put that into context obviously when i got into sports law some years ago now 12 years ago again there was still a, a reluctance to accept all sort of the globalization of sport in some in some areas of the sports context so back in 1973 i can imagine how strange that may have seemed to some uh, that you, you go further afield to look look for information um was it because and forgive me if i'm getting too personal but was it was it because you'd seen you, you, obviously the activity of your mother and father in being proactive in in doing stuff essentially right in the sector that gave you a, a a sort of belief that you thought hey you know what i might be able to do something here was that sort of underpinning it was did you have a, a confidence that you may actually be able to influence something because as it or, or maybe it's just me but i know a lot of young people uh, i was one myself believe it or not but <laughs> um when i was younger there was a you kind of felt that you had the ability to do you may have the ability to do something but i wasn't necessarily confident that i could actually do it did you have a sort of an, a belief in yourself that you could shape something because you'd seen your, your your father and mother do it yeah I think that's right you know I think um you know sometimes you ask you know where does your confidence come from um and you know you have to work on it um you know I I I I am grateful in many ways that um I've been willing to take risks in my career. You know, I didn't, I didn't lead an orthodox legal career. Um, you know, I was involved in creating the player association movement in Australia um, at a time when it didn't exist. So when, I, when, when we left school, when I left law school in, at the start of the 90s, there just wasn't a player association movement um, in Australia. Um, but what was happening at that stage was that a lot of sport was starting to go full time. We were seeing the emergence of satellite television, pay television. And so therefore athletes in some of the major sports like cricket, um, rugby league, rugby union um, and AFL, of course, were starting to go full time and they didn't understand and there was an awareness around um, player unionism. Um, and that was something that um, I'd read about uh, at law school. I'd read the autobiography of Marvin Miller, the um, founding executive director of the Major League Players Association. And, and that was a really inspiring read for me, not, not just in terms of how he transformed the career paths and the economic opportunities of the players, but how through the Players Association, the game was transformed for the better. Because, because the... Um, Sports had been so successful in their monopolistic ways and they'd been run literally, as I said, my father was one of the few full-time employees at that time, which meant they were run by amateur committees. And amateur committees were not set up to actually meet the challenge um, of the era. 
And so the players were becoming full-time, but in many ways the administration was still very old-fashioned. And what Miller was able to demonstrate was that this will actually take the game forward and it will take the game forward not just on the field but as an industry. And when it came to me looking at the challenge of of Australian soccer, um, it was absolutely clear that the players were really driving enormous credibility for the game. By that stage, we'd started to produce players like uh, Mark Viduka, um, Harry Kuehl, Mark Schwarzer, a little bit later, Tim Cale, Paul Ocon, Frank Farina, um, Eddie Krenchevich, Craig Johnston, of course, a little bit earlier. These players were now significant players in the Premier League. We had other players knocking on the door um, of, of Italy and shortly players like Grella and Bresciano would be coming great players in the Serie A, John Aloisi into Spain. And all of this was at a time when the administration was seen to be very backward. So the game was starting to get credibility through the players, um, but they weren't organised. And, you know, the, the lucky opportunity I had was that literally my best friend, uh, Kimon Taliadoris, just happened to be one of the best players in the National Soccer League, as it then was. And he wanted to transfer from one club to another club because the national coach, a legendary coach in Australia named Frank Arrock, was was also coaching that other club and he wanted to advance his international career. Um, you know, to cut a long story short, this was a very, even though he was out of contract, this was a very problematic um, transfer. The rules were very restrictive. And um, once we had completed the transaction, Kimon and I looked at each other and we said, well, mate, if you've had these problems and you're one of the best players in the country, you can imagine how everyone else is going. So maybe we need a union and maybe we should start going around and, and meeting the players and see if they have any belief in um, organising a collective voice um, and, and really deliver in Australia the vision that, that Miller had achieved in baseball in the States, which is not only will we transform the, the career paths of our players, but we will hopefully transform the game if we get the business side right. In fact, if we don't get the business side right, there won't be any opportunities for the players. We, we understood that very, very um, clearly. And so Kimon and I started the discussion one by one, going around, seeing all of the players, developing a sense of collective confidence, listening to all of their problems, solving their problems, um, you know, that, that which is very important towards building trust and, and creating a sense of uh, achievement of, as to what we could do if we, if we acted together. Um, and, you know, I was one of a group of people that literally did this type of work for two or three years on a voluntary basis um, in order to build a movement. Um, you know, others who come to live are people like Tony Irish, who set up cricket Associate, the Cricketers Association in South Africa and, and then the International Cricketers Association. Tim May also did the same in Australian cricket. Uh, Rob Nickel, who's still in charge of the New Zealand rugby players. There's a group of us who, uh, Tony Dempsey, who set up the Rugby Union Players Association in Australia. There was a group of us who were willing, and, and, and quite a number of us were lawyers, who were willing to sort of volunteer in our spare time to try and get these associations up and running, get the first round of collective bargaining underway and really start to develop a, a professional player association movement. And so you just made so many good points there that, that I want to draw out from people. For one, the one that I always sort of reflect on is that, uh, at least when I started out, and I like to think it's changing, but I still think there is a reluctance to accept that having an organised labour movement for, for players coordinated is, is, is and, and having that sort of shared objectives as we've seen in the major leagues, as we see in the Premier League, as we've seen elsewhere in the world, in Australia, it's better for the sport overall because everyone's pushing in the same direction. So it just creates less friction. But that's kind of sort of my, my, my sort of loose uh, assessment of it. But the other point that you made, and I just want to draw this out because we know it's a very attractive sector to get into. People that love sport, their sport or sport more broadly um, are so keen to get involved. And, you know, as you know, we run mentoring schemes amongst other things that we do. And sometimes people can get disillusioned because they go, oh, in my country, there's not the, they're not the paid opportunities. And you, as you just said, you just sound, you've mentioned the list of great people, all of which who's probably spent two or more years, um, uh, you know, working 
on on a on a on a, on a no paid basis, and probably even when you were being paid, eventually it probably wasn't equivalent to a, what would be equivalent to the market rate if you're in private practice law. So, but if you it's out, you know, the reason why I say this is obviously I've got huge admiration for the work you've done and the, the work of the others, but it's that point and i think it gets lost all the time that if you're trying to do something that is meaningful and impactful sometimes it can be difficult and take longer than you'd anticipate but um i think you'd probably say to everyone that it was worth it in the end and so um uh, um so let's carry on from there then so she what was the appetite from the players at the time because one of the things i remember you know looking at setting up a boxers commission not union though in, in as you know in in you uh, many years ago, um, I spoke to the likes of Walter Palmer. I think I spoke to you. I spoke to many other people about it, and everyone said, "Look, it's a lot of hard work. You're going to have to go and see everyone in person." Um, and they said, "You might. Have, some people might not be that keen to be involved." What were the sort of? Was it just a case that everyone thought this is a great idea? They're going to come on board, or was there a little? Um, did you have to go through a sort of an educational process to explain how this, how a union would work, and 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 why it'd be beneficial? Oh, look, it, it, it really um, required a lot of conversations and, and, and remember it hadn't been done before in Australia. So we couldn't really point to an example as to where it had been successful. Of course, uh, the PFA at that time in England was um, just taking important strike action over its share of television rights. And at that stage was you know, very, very strong. And, um, and, and a lot of players understood that. So the, the example of the PFA in England was, was um, important. Um, and it really just uh, – and the, when we went around and we spoke to the players, and remember, I didn't know them. I knew Kimon. So you know, the, the way in which I would do it was I'd meet a player with Kimon and then he would introduce me to another, such as Frank Farina or Warren Spink or all these names you may not know, but really important players back then, Greg Brown, Alex Tobin. And, you know, one, I just got to know them, Oscar Crino, and then we'd use the credibility. It was all about building trust and listening, uh, one by one, building these collective relationships. And that took about a year. And then when we had our first meeting, what became clear is that, you know, the players wanted two things. They, they not only wanted um, a better career path, and, and we could point to a litany of appalling abuses, you know, transfer system, players being kicked out of the game, uh, non-payment of salaries, unfair terminations, no support when injured. They, you know, the, the industrial list was very easy to develop and needed to be um, addressed. But there was just this sense of, you know, the game's not living up to its potential. You know, we've got the opportunity to play and we're good enough to play at the highest level. You know, our, our 91 under 20 side made the semi-final of the Youth World Cup. And so there was this really strong uh, expectation on the part of the players that we have to get the game right. And, and that really gave a sense of confidence because when we started to act, uh, uh, advocate for the direction of the game, um, it, the, the players knew that wasn't a selfish mission. Um, you know, the players were always concerned about just being self-centered or coming across as being self-centered when their motivations were ultimately quite altruistic. And sure, they were going to benefit, but they had to benefit in this indirect um, manner. Um, so that really was um, quite inspiring uh, from my point of view. But the other thing I had to do in terms of my own journey was that I sort of understood the sport bit. I, I, I had been exposed to that. I actually had to learn the union bit. And so what I did was I, I, I literally went out of sport as much as I possibly could. Uh, I went and got a legal position at the Australian Council of Trade Unions for a couple of years. I worked at a labor law firm and I went about learning very much about the stuff that I didn't know um, and trying to become um, an expert in that. And one of the first things the, the players union did was challenge the transfer system that then applied in Australia in, in 1995. And we were successful in that action. And there's probably two points, I think, which were interesting. Um, one's quite legal. Um, and that is, uh, you know, tra the, the, we, went, we went to what was then called the Australian Industrial Relations Commission. And it only had jurisdiction over matters which pertain to the employment relationship. And the 
soccer authorities argued that because the, 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 the transfer system also applied to players when they weren't employed, um, it, it, it was beyond the jurisdiction of the commission, um, even though it had such a shocking impact on the players. The actual authority that we were able to use to convince the commission that it had jurisdiction related to the recruitment practices around mining and, and first on and last, uh, last on, first off, those types of processes which had been the subject of industrial disputes in Australia's mining industry for many, many years and had been litigated all the way through to our high court. So if we hadn't gone through and read all of those cases, then we would have had a more difficult job. And I think that's very, very important. You know, Marvin Miller himself came from the Steelworkers Union. He, he had a great rapport for baseball, but that wasn't his background. So we had to really educate ourselves in the other areas and then think through how we can apply it. The second thing I think which was very important is that when we challenged the transfer system, the soccer authorities said it will be the death of the game. You know, the competition will become uneven. The big clubs will dominate. The small clubs will go under. The, 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 the old arguments that we hear all the time. Um, they're all objectives that the players share. We do want an economically strong league. We do want competitive balance, if at all possible. That means there's more great jobs. Um, but we were able to convince the commission uh, on the facts that the means by which the soccer authorities were trying to pursue those objectives was were ineffective, that we actually won the good of the game argument factually. And I think we were very proud of that. And that, that then gave us the foundation for collective bargaining because really the soccer authorities were left in an environment where, well, now that the Industrial Relations Commission's taking over here, if we don't bargain this with our players, then we're going to lose a lot of um, authority. So there were some, some interesting lessons there, which I, I think are universal. I think they apply today. You know, over the last four or five years, at the global level, we've had to really you know, get deep in relation to internationally recognised human rights and, and really learn about the application of business and human rights to the world of sport. Now, this is new for the world of sport, but it's not new for global business. You know, big brands like Adidas and Nike and others have had supply chain issues exposed for 20 or 30 years. And so what are the lessons we can draw from that, which we can then apply to sport? And again, that's going to be great for sport because that means that sport will actually be able to know and show that it's respecting human rights in everything it does, that it is a genuine force for good. I don't see why sport would be um, reluctant about embracing um, that journey, but it's a similar process in a different context than what we went through all those all those years ago. Uh, yeah, we've talked about this at, at length and in the past, and I, I, I and I say it to, to people coming through. I say it to, to you know, well-established lawyers looking to do more sports work that the application of law outside of sport to the legal sector is at times it seems to me, and we obviously we. We try to drive that forward through law and sport, but it, it seems like there's so much more that could be done in that arena. And, and sometimes it can be overlooked. Even even some of the great lawyers at times f try to almost um, shape themselves to what's going on in the sports sector as opposed to looking and say, OK, what's going on with, uh, I don't know, it could be data protection, it could be um, competition law, it could be whatever it may be. Um, how does that apply to the sports sector? And so it's interesting that uh, I think, again, really wise words to, to, to say to people, look, hey, if, whether you're in a sports administration or legal role or whether you're on the outside advising, look at, make sure you stay up to date. And, um, you know, from a sports lawyer's perspective or lawyers working in sport or administrators working, it creates more jobs, essentially. It creates a better, if, if the sector improves, it gets more professionalised. It creates more opportunity for everyone. Um, so what would, um, I feel like we're going to have to do various parts to this interview. But anyway, uh, there's so much to talk about. But obviously you helped establish uh, um, uh, the PFA in Australia. You get involved with FIFA Pro and setting up FIFA Pro Asia. Is that correct? And yeah. then how do you, how do you, can you join those dots for me to how you became the executive director at World Players? Yeah, sure. You know, it's, it's a similar journey in, in many ways, you know. Um, 
we in late 90s you know fifa reached out to australia and said look you know uh, we have this global union it was still very much in development now some very good leaders were coming together including tio van seglen from from the netherlands and so we joined and then i think it only had maybe 20 20 members or so um but but fifa was very determined to grow the voice and um being based in um australia you know, we, we had a really, you know, obviously thinking globally, you know, we had a lot of players working all around the world. I think we had 150, 200 players, even back then, Australian players playing in all different countries, uh, confronting all sorts of problems. And so the need to develop uh, an internationally enforceable contract system and labor system, which we now have, was, was, was very, very um, uh, pressing. Um, so we immediately embraced the concept of of being a member of FIFA Pro, and the strategic um, challenge we had then in Australian football too was we were part of the Oceania Football Confederation, which meant we couldn't really develop our national teams. You know, every four years we would dominate the Oceania Confederation and then face this awful playoff scenario against a country such as Argentina or Uruguay, home and away, going to penalties. Um, and if we didn't qualify, then we would um, have to wait another four years. So Australia, too, politically was very much engaging much more deeply with Asia than ever before. You know, being a Western nation in Asia has always been a really complicated uh, geopolitical issue for Australia, a cultural issue, an economic issue. Um, in so many different ways. And so sport can be a great um, driver of connection. Um, so we were very keen to be part of FIFA Pro and very keen to see Australia become part of the Asian Football Confederation. Um, and so those uh, uh, two areas really were aligned. And I went through a similar process in many ways to what I did in Australia, you know, traveling to Indonesia, uh, meeting with people on the ground, Malaysia. Um, South Korea, uh, Japan, although the union was already established in Japan, but building very, very close relations, helping establish the union in New Zealand, even spending a lot of time in Palestine, really trying to uh, develop the player's voice. Um, and then as part of that, FIFPRO started to develop its um, divisions, Europe, Asia, Oceania, uh, the Americas, and of course, Africa. Um, and so, yeah, that took a lot of time. It was different. It was. It didn't involve immediately, you know, leading the union like I was doing with the PFA in Australia, but really identifying the player leaders, very much identifying uh, who could be great secretaries or CEOs of the unions on the ground, and really helping skill them up so that and 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 so they're motivated as well and have an awareness of just how difficult the work is. You know, Isam Ismail, who's now on the board of FIFA Pro um, from PFA Malaysia, is a young lawyer. He's done an incredible um, job and he was identified because he was willing to translate one of our early meetings um, with players. And um, yeah, he did the years that I was just talking about. He did those volunteer years so that you know, he could build up. And I think he's now one of the most credible um, player leaders um, in the world. That's awesome. And what would you say, yeah, being someone who's, again, I'll describe you as a person of action, right? So being someone who's a person of action, and I imagine, and you know, we, people would know you joke around in terms of you've sort of mellowed out a little bit over the <laughs> over the years. This, this is some of your good friends. And so, and I've always known you being someone who's very forthright and very direct, uh, which is one of your sort of like shining qualities, I think. Um because you know where you stand and you get to the point re really quickly um, and often from a, from a inf very informed perspective. But how did you find transitioning then from being this sort of like on the ground, speaking to players, that transition into this sort of, you know, building capacity and identifying talent in, a, in, a, in different cultural environments? How did you, what were, I guess, how did you approach it and what lessons did you take away into your later roles? I think there's probably some really valuable lessons for, for myself and, and others listening to sort of pick up from that. Um, I think it, it, it's, it's probably a couple of things think to mind, uh, spring to mind. Um, in Asia, I, I just think um, just being present, you know, spending a lot of time, showing you care, um, not dictating, um, you know, very much listening, empowering, um, learning, 
Um, and, you know, I, I still feel incredibly naive and ignorant about, you know, like it's such a big part of the world. Each of those countries have their own domestic complexities, let alone to try and work at it at a, at a, at a regional level. But I think spending time is very important. I think you can only, you know, advocate for a group if they're going to trust you. And, and the only way you can build trust is to, is to break bread and, 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 and listen and, and, and learn and, and show you care. And, you know, if, if people know you care, then if you do make mistakes or you don't get the breakthroughs, which were which are inevitable part of this kind of work, then they're gonna they're gonna go with you, particularly if if you identify the values around which you know you you share. And and one of the things I've always tried to do is to build um, around values, you know, and the values of the PFA, which are include respect, trust. Um, courage, you know, values like this, uh, intelligence is another one, which, or knowledge is probably a better word. You know, we, we're learning and we're growing and we're developing. So if we don't break through immediately, we're, we're going to come back and we're going to think about um, a better way. Um, that That's all I would say. I, I also went to and did the Asian Business Leaders course at the University of Melbourne. So I went through a formal education process as well and, uh, and recommended did you find that. that- yeah, was that valuable? Oh, enormously valuable. It just accelerates your 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 learning, and and it was at a postgraduate sort of level, so it was very practical. Um, there's a group there called Asia Link, which is really, um, and it's very challenging, as I mentioned, for Australia. You know, Australia is still coming to terms with its place in Asia, and will always. Um, so you know, there are a lot of people thinking about about those issues. I think one of the things I first noticed, though, when I went into my first FIFPRO meeting in 99 in, in, in Copenhagen, no one actually cared what I had to say because I was from Australia. Like, it was just completely irrelevant, and that was obvious to me. Whereas if Gordon Taylor spoke from England, people would listen, or Gerardo Mavilla from Spain, or Philippe Piat from France, or Leo Grosso from Italy – um people go well what you know these are big football countries uh people are interested in what they've got to say but australia was a laughing stock so no one cared um so what what i learned very quickly was that unless i can have a sense of where the room is at and what's in and develop a sense of what's in the overall best interests of fief pro and take a fief pro first type mindset then um, we won't get anywhere. Um, who I am is completely irrelevant. It's it's absolutely up to the way I conduct myself and what I do, and and I think you know that that is something that you know I've I've always tried to work on. What's in our overall best interests here, and in many ways that what led to the opportunity with the World Players Association. Um, you know, a fantastic guy named Walter Palmer, a former NBA player, multilingual. Uh, played in Europe a lot, um, helped set up uh, or was a driving force behind the establishment of EU athletes, the European Athletes Union. You know, it became clear that we needed a voice um, at the global multi-sport table. Um, some decisions were being made at the Olympic, anti-WADA, Court of Arbitration and Sport level, which if they'll put to us at a domestic level, you would you would laugh at them. But these were being imposed upon us. And so we had to develop this discussion about a global multi-sport union. And FIFPRO obviously was going to be pivotal to that, as were the Australian unions in many ways, not, not nearly to the same degree as FIFPRO, but football being such a big sport and such now a highly unionised sport. You know, we have 85,000 athletes in the World Players Association through our unions, over 100 in more than 60 countries, and 65,000 of them are football players. So it just gives you a sense of just how big that sport is. Um, and so we, we started to develop World Players Association. We formally set it up at the end of 2014. And fortunately, I was offered the opportunity to become its um, executive director at that time. Um, and the other thing, of course, which we're all about is just sharing best practice and um and and learning you know there's there's a view in our group that this work gets harder every day and if we look at some of the issues that we're now trying to address um be it abuse i mentioned human rights um head injury 
uh, player health and safety, uh, data, which is something you mentioned earlier. Uh, these are just issues I'm, I'm mentioning quite randomly. But the reality is that the very subject matter of representing players has evolved so much from those very simple issues that I described back in the early 90s. And I think that's part of the reason why people can stay involved in this movement for a long period of time. You know, it's, the, the job has in many ways been the same, but the job, the, the, the work has been just transformed. It's so much more complicated now. It's much bigger. Uh, it's more political. And so therefore, if we're not constantly learning and growing and developing, then we're going backwards. And so it keeps us um, agile. Um, so what would you say then in terms of, we had Demoris Smith, obviously one of the members of World Players um, with the NFL Players Association speak at a conference and he, he was brilliant. And he was saying about the new um, organisation that's been established between the NFL, PA, I think Major League Baseball Players Association, I may be wrong, uh, NWSL Players Association, um, and maybe the NHL Players Association, forgive me if I've got that, got that wrong, but um, he was, one of the things I thought was so fascinating was that essentially they've now got control of their commercial rights um, and the value that they were given compared to the value when it went for an agency, the agency had basically undervalued or something. I think like, like, like they, they got a, their market value is now worth six times greater than what it was going for an agency. And I thought this is fascinating going from what you're saying in terms of that evolution of, of unions focusing on, you know, we've got our labor rights here, then moving into a, a transition and going, actually these now other commercial rights are, are worth a bit of money as well. And actually we are best placed to exploit these for the best interest of, of, of our members. How are you seeing, or how do you see the, the future of player unions around the world? It seems, as you said, it seems to be evolving at such a rapid pace. Yeah, look, there's certainly a demand, you know, let, let's be clear. And there's certainly a need, you know, the challenge is, 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 is whether we're up to it as a movement and, and whether the, and making sure that the players, you know, and, and have ownership of it. Um, because without that, we're, we're not effective. Um, and what Dee is describing is, you know, is that you know, his commercial innovation has been extraordinary. See, one of the unique things about a player union is you've got to flip traditional unionism on its head. Most unions exist because a large number of people pay a small amount of money uh, to fund a collective voice. But our work is by its very nature elite. You know, um, there are, uh, you know, we, we had 250 members in, in the PFA in Australia. You couldn't get any more, you know, there's 25 players on a roster in major league baseball. There's, there's 30 clubs, you know, it's, it's naturally, um, limited. So we have to solve this fundamental economic problem is how do we fund our, our, our unions and the most effective means by which this has been done. And again, this is something that Marvin Miller pioneered way back in the sixties is for the players to assign their group rights to their union to be commercially um, exploited. And our most successful unions have been able to develop this model so that through licensing, merchandising, others in relation to uh, sports sponsorship, they've been able to uh, uh, generate revenue commercially um, uh, so that they can fund the union activities as well as paying reasonable uh, and commercial royalties back to the players whose names and images are being used in these programs. So this is one of the most important areas of collaboration between the affiliates of the World Players Association. There is a massive inequality of arms when it comes to the voice of athletes and the voice of sports bodies. Now, when you take a step back and you look at the wealth of FIFA, and you go, well, most of that wealth comes because just over 700 players are willing to play 64 games every four years. Um, and then that wealth is used in many ways to regulate and control the players. Then um, there's clearly a disconnect. And this applies to nearly all major sports. So unless we can get some um, control over the way the players' images are commercially exploited, then we uh, we we lose um, a lot of leverage. And what D has been able to pioneer in the states, and what we would love to do 
globally is to say, well, hang on a second. Uh, we can learn from each other. We can actually now bring together the images on a multi-sport ma- uh, basis. But also what we've learned is that the sports bodies themselves weren't really maximizing these revenue streams. They didn't have to. And in fact, they didn't want to because that would give the players more power. So, um, you know, this is one of the key areas of best practice that we focus on. Um, the others that we focus on include the art of organizing, you know, get, uh, how to get the players in, in, into a strong leadership position collectively. And, of course, the other thing we all share in common is that, it, and this will never change, the athletic career is by its very nature short-term and, and, and precarious. And so we have to be committed to developing not just great athletes but great people. And so our player development and well-being work, and you've been a part of this um, as you uh, going back to our conference in Paris in I think uh, 2015, um, 2017, yeah, 20, 2017 I think it was years ago in by, but um, yeah, that that is an area where we're continuing um, to learn and. You know, some of the really important developments in that in recent years have been, yeah, how do we equip our unions to deal with athletes that are reporting abuse? How do we deal with the fact now that a lot of our unions have 50% female membership when traditionally these unions were male-dominated? How do we fight for gender equality? Um, and these are all issues that, that we're embracing. Uh, but we do so with humility, knowing that we have to learn and listen and empower the athletes themselves to have ownership of the decisions that are made in these areas. Yeah, I just want to reiterate on that. You asked me to, as an independent, to come and moderate uh, for our friend Francis, um, uh, I think, who, who who saw, I think we knew each other through Twitter, but maybe even from Francis's tweet um, uh, that he put out. But um, the... The thing I took away from that conference, which had a huge impact on how we did events, was the fact that the humility that you had the All Blacks, you had Super Bowl winning players speaking, you had pioneers of the Major League Baseball Players Union, you had um, the the, the English PFA, you had Australian PFA, you had all these different people. It was just the fact that every single presentation that was given or every discussion Everyone was there saying, oh, we'd love to learn from each other. and We'd like to you know, really think, is there anything we could do better? Please let us know. And it made me reflect on the adversarial nature at times of the legal profession and how uh, conferences and events are sometimes the, the everyone's trying to nitpick on what someone got wrong as opposed to look for the opportunity where there's there's something new to, to um, sort of take from it. And I'm not saying that's indicative of the whole profession, but compared to that conference at the time, it was a quite stark contrast. And I thought, right, what can we take and try to build that environment in the legal capacity where we can say, hey, you know what? We recognize there's things that people could do better. Let's try and learn from each other. And so it was really, really was his, like I said, but particularly I remember the, um, one of the ladies from the All, from the All Blacks uh, the Player Association getting up and going like yeah we think yeah i think they just won the world <laughs> the world champs and they're going you know i think we could you know it's anything we could do better you know we'd love to know <laughs> i just remember thinking that's absolutely fantastic and I, I can't remember the gentleman's name who was the super bowl winner but again this but just 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 really hum it was a humbleness in which people approached it was was really quite inspiring um and it created led to a really fantastic discussion so i always thank you for, for having the privilege to be involved in that it was really was really was something in terms of um yeah, I, you are always someone who's, and you said, I think at the centre of your DNA, it seems almost that, that this quest to continually learn. And, you know, we've had so many discussions and sometimes like sort of, yeah, yeah, various back and forth over the years as we sort of build our understanding. You've always had this knowledge, you know, continue, continue hunger to learn as, as your sort of, it seems as your, part of your DNA. Who, you've mentioned Marvin Miller. Um, and it was Bram Dabshak and yourself, I think, who put me on to Marvin Miller, who, if you haven't read uh, Bram's work, it's absolutely fantastic. Um, and it made me realise that how much of the stuff that's gone in the past, particularly in the legal profession, we can learn from, you know, that, that we, and I think it's coming more pronounced in this generation of, of like, oh, everything's new, everything's, you know, we're not taking time to reflect as much in the say as, as maybe as previous generations. Who has inspired you or who have you learned from? So you mentioned Marvin Miller, you mentioned some of the players. Who are some of the other people, both in and outside of sport, that you would say to people, hey, 
I would encourage you to go and look at their work or I encourage you to look at their career? Um, it's probably too many um, to mention, really. Um, you know, I just would encourage people to read um, and, uh, or, or, you know, you can consume all these things. Uh, I think I learn a lot through, you know, really studying, um, you know, business. You know, I, I've, I, I really um, like Jim Collins' work, you know, the author of Good to Great, uh, you know, this concept of level five leadership where you have these very rare leaders who just have this combination of humility and will. Um, and I think, um, see, the, the nature of being a player union leader is it, it has to be humbling because all of your members are more famous than you. So if you think you're going to say something and you're the wisest one in the room, any of your members can come out publicly at any time and say you're a fool. And, and you would be. Um, and they would get more media for that. And so there's just this enormous accountability that goes with these types of roles. And, um, and um, so I, I, I would point to that. You know, a lot of my leader, a lot of the real inspirational people in my life um, are those who probably come through civil rights, human rights, those, but those that focus on changing the system. Um, and that, that to me is, is the work that I, I find, you know, truly inspiring. Not that we just won a case, but that we were um, able to change a system. And, and I think the sports system needs still to be changed fundamentally. Um, and and, if, and that, that can be an example for um, you know, what needs to occur more, more broadly. You know, pe people are losing confidence in the key governance institutions in too many countries right now. And that's because our leaders too often have been acting in a, in a selfish way. Um, you know, but when, when I grew up and started to really work in the 80s, you know, there were incredible leaders on the side of labor, including people like Bob Hawke and, and Paul Keating who said, we're going to have a, a great social democracy, but we're also going to run a great economy. And we can do both of those things. And, and that, to me, I think is the art. Now, a lot of people would look back and say, well, um, okay, well, maybe they're responsible and we can cancel them out and say, well, there's too much inequality now. And that's all true. And that wasn't intended. Uh, and they would have put their hands up and said, hey, we can fix that too. What are we going to do to address inequality? Because it's one of the biggest problems we face uh, next to the climate um, in, in humanity at the moment. But I, I was inspired by the boldness of, of, of those leaders to make Australia uh, a great place to live, uh, as equal as it can possibly be, but also competitive, outward-looking, um, engaged in Asia, global but local at the same time and at the moment i would probably say a woman by the name of megan davis who's leading the process for what we're doing in australia called the uluru statement from the heart now australia unfortunately was established as a white australia with a white australia policy racism is in our dna and and megan you know from a very poor background um the way in which she united and listened to the many nations that make up Australia's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander populations to deliver one of the most powerful things. And if anyone can read it, it's only two pages, what we call the Uluru Statement from the Heart, so that hopefully later this year we can vote in a referendum to recognise our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in the way they want to be recognised, to start a process towards a treaty um, and then truth-telling because Australia is one of the few countries to be established without a treaty, without its Indigenous people. Now, the journey that someone like Megan and many, many others have been on is just um, truly remarkable. And she could have said at any time, it's all too hard. We're not going to succeed. The referendum might still be defeated. I, I, I pray that it won't be, and we'll work hard to make sure that it's not.
that all of us could have given up. Um, and, you know, probably my favourite speech, good thing to finish on, is, you know, Bobby Kennedy's famous speech, um, the Day of Affirmation Address in 1965. And at a low point in my life, I went to and saw his grave at Arlington Cemetery in, in, in Washington, D.C. And the great speech there is a tiny ripple of hope that every time, you know, a person stands up for an ideal or, or speaks out against oppression, it sends forth that tiny ripple of hope. And if enough ripples gather momentum, they can sweep down the mightiest walls of oppression and resistance. And what that does is that deals with futility. One of the biggest reasons why we would give up is we think this works too hard. It's futile. But, you know, we can just, all of us can throw a pebble in the pond. All of us can do that. And you just never know what can happen. And had I known where this journey would land when I began and you said I wouldn't have changed it, I probably would have given up. I wouldn't have realized how hard it was going to be. But I can't change it now. Um, sometimes I think about the opportunity cost, about the other stuff I could have done but I can't change it now. And yeah, I, I would say my, my sources of inspiration change, but uh, yeah, I, I think Megan's work is just tr truly remarkable. I'm going to, oh, I'm going to certainly look at that. I think it's, yeah, it's a great, it's, it's great. You mentioned that and I'll, I'll put a link in, I think on the, on the podcast link as well. I know we're slightly overrunning. I did want to get into um, what you consider to be your biggest achievement, but knowing you, you're going to, I probably know what your answer is going to be, <laughs> but because uh, it's, it's probably going to be a, quite a selfless answer. But what would you say is, is your biggest achievement to date? Um, yeah, look, I, I saw that you wanted to ask me that question. And um, I, I would, I was very proud in the lead up to the World Cup when the Socceroos issued the statement um, and the video, which was viewed by millions of people in relation to the human rights issues in Qatar. Um, I was very proud of that because, um, and I had very little involvement in it. Um, but what it indicated to me was that, you know, the values of our organization are being passed on from generation to generation. Now, I was very proud when the Matildas stood up for gender equality and the, and the Socceroos partnered them on that. And, and I think that's probably, uh, and that's not taking any credit for the work, but what the Socceroos did in that was they were respectful, they'd done their homework, they'd spent a lot of time on the ground in Qatar, they'd met the ILO there, they'd met with migrant workers, hotel workers, they were informed and they were probably the most organised group on that issue. Um, in the lead up to, you know, the, the, the litmus test in many ways for the intersection of sport and human rights. And I think, um, I'm not saying that's my achievement, but that's what gives me the most pleasure, that ultimately we can only contribute for a certain period of time. Um, but if we can encourage people to continue the work, and that the work we're doing becomes sustainable, and it constantly improves because um, people want to take it forward and enhance it, then, yeah, that, that to me, I think, would ultimately give me the most pleasure. And I was delighted to see the Socceroos do that. And what too many people probably don't fully realise is that that helped their performance on the field enormously because when they got to Qatar, they'd already said their bit. The questions that they were going to be asked, they had already answered. They'd answered genuinely. And then they were galvanized by that experience. Um, and I'm not saying because of it, but it certainly contributed to the galvanization of the team. And the team exceeded all expectations, I think, apart from their own. <laughs> and um, yeah, that was tremendous, tremendous to see. Brilliant. I love that. I, I love that, um, that answer. And yeah, it was, and I love the, the, the preparation point that they weren't going na naively and then having to respond. They were well prepared in advance. And you can't you know, underestimate the psychological um, benefits of that, I would imagine, and the stress of, you know, the, the, that, you know, when you go to bed at night and you're like, why did I respond to that question in that way? I wasn't prepared how much that could impact on performance. Brendan, an absolute privilege to have you on the podcast. As as you know, you're, every time we speak, I always, you know, I found it, 
over the years, I've just found it so invaluable because you've tested me and questioned me and prodded me and probed me with an intellectual rigor and, and, and integrity and honesty that we've been able to have some brilliant discussions and ones that have, you know, we don't always see eye to eye on things, but who we don't always have to, but I've definitely always come away from, always come away from it enriched. Um, and thank you for your work. As I said, it benefits you, you amongst others. The work that you guys have done has benefited me as a both as a sports fan, but as as working in sports law, um, and particularly obviously the, the groundbreaking work that you've been doing and have been doing. And I, I flag this a lot to people on the human rights side, and particularly on the business side um, of that. Like, how does it help the business and the organisation? get better and help people so thank you for being a great human being thank you for being on the podcast buddy i really appreciate it um yeah and i hope other people i hope you if you enjoyed the show please do let brenda know of course and <laughs> reach out to him and, and i you know and if you are interested in the player movement if you're interested in helping players um there is i would ask you to probably listen back to this a few times because some real gems in there don't overlook them and we'll put some show notes in as well about the Uluru statement uh bob kennedy's speech and, and jim collins i think you mentioned as well so I'll do that thanks brendan thanks sean pleasure